United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a really great show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back once again, and while I know we had things lined up to continue our conversation on CDR technologies, we're going to delay that for a week to address the research that came out a week ago Monday on the persistence of polar bears over the next century. Now, I will apologize up front, as I know this isn't necessarily a happy show, but while we have dealt with some more positive topics in the last few weeks, we cannot shelter ourselves from the, well, I guess, disheartening nature of the havoc we have caused through anthropogenic climate change. That said, I will commit to bringing it back to the positive side next week. You know, far too often the dodo is invoked when we speak of the possible extinction of a species, and to be honest, while the analogy is sound, no one who has lived since almost a hundred years before the formation of the United States has ever had any type of experience with them save for seeing a hand drawing, as the last known recorded sighting was in what, 1688 I believe? And this makes it hard for modern society to feel their loss. For me, at least, a much more apt analogy is the northern square-lipped white rhinoceros. March 19th, 2018 is etched, in my mind, as the news of Sudan, the last male of his subspecies, passed away, marking the inevitable end of the northern white rhino. Now, news spread around the world of this as implications reverberated in people's minds, and while in no way could Sudan have known that he was the last of his kind, it was the first passing of a species, at least in my lifetime, that made me think about the loneliness of that knowledge. Further, the fact that unless I have the chance to go to the O.L. Pejeta Conservancy in Kenya to see the last two remaining females— Neither I nor my children will ever have the opportunity to behold a northern white rhinoceros, except maybe on YouTube. So it's with Sudan the rhino in mind that I approach the importance of the conservancy of polar bears. First and foremost, Ursus maritimus, or more commonly polar bears, hold a unique niche on the planet. Not only are they the largest land carnivores currently in existence, males can weigh upwards of 700 kilograms or 1,500 pounds, but they, as their name implies, are a maritime bear, specifically adapted as one of the few animals to live in and around the frigid waters north of the Arctic Circle. Quick aside, if you ever see a picture of a polar bear and a penguin, it's a fake, as penguins only live in the southern hemisphere and polar bears only in the northern hemisphere. Just a quick fact for you. Anyway, so let's start today with what makes us in the scientific community so concerned about the polar bear and its persistence. They get birth on land, right? So what's the big deal? They, like other creatures, can adapt to just being a little hotter, so really it's just a bunch of tree huggers worried about nothing. Well, as ironic as it is to say that's a cold-hearted line of thinking with a warming planet, it's also fairly ignorant. 
Polar bears fill the role of the apex predator, and as with any apex predator, they are vital in keeping their biome healthy. In fact, there's been some incredible research coming out of Yellowstone National Park as of late detailing how the reintroduction of an apex predator there, the wolf, has brought balance back to the entire ecosystem. The same as sharks do with a coral reef, at least when warming waters and ocean acidification aren't destroying it. My point here with these two examples is to note that even if we were to accept the plight of the polar bear, there will most likely be far-ranging implications. Okay, so now let's dive into our paper this week and hopefully gain a better understanding of what exactly is happening and why scientists are so worried and if there is any hope for this amazing creature. The paper we're looking at today is titled Fasting Season Length Sets Temporal Limits for Global Polar Bear Persistence and was published on the 20th of July, 2020. As always, if you want more detail, pop over to south2degrees.org to find the link. Now, what makes this paper unique is that it looked at the potential survival of polar bears through a slightly different lens than studies before it. Instead of looking purely at sea ice cover and making assumptions, there is some rich detail here. However, it doesn't paint a pretty picture. To come up with better estimates, this paper looked not only at sea ice, but also at the fasting duration and energy requirements to maintain such a behemoth of a creature, as well as how fasting affects cub recruitment, in other words, pregnancy. Now, it did so with a massive data set of observations from 1979 to 2016 in order to analyze these demographic trends. To start, let's take a step back and look at the world's frozen northern region and understand why sea ice is important. Sea ice is a critical spot for seals, both to give birth and to rest. Subsequently, it is also the platform from which polar bears hunt, namely on those resting seals. Think of it as their local Captain D's or Long John Silver's, only the bear's fishermen's platters aren't deep-fried and served with chips. However, like those restaurants, the polar bear's food is covered in greasy fat. Yes, polar bears are born on land, but as a large hyper-carnivore, high-caloric feeding opportunities just aren't present on shore, so they have to take to the frozen sea to build the energy stores that they need. Now, as we talked about several weeks ago in the show on Arctic amplification, we know that there has been an increasing and decadal loss of sea ice since the 1950s. When sea ice isn't present, polar bears are faced really with three options. Swim to where there is sea ice, scavenge for what they can, or fast. As we discussed in episode 10, polar bears have been recorded swimming over 90 kilometers in as little as 38 hours. However, you may also remember that swimming takes five times the energy of walking and would thus require polar bears to find significant increases in food supply, which just can't happen when the sea ice is further dispersed. Further, we discovered that polar bears have been filmed diving for seaweed on which to feed. However, it shouldn't take a scientist to realize that seaweed is not a viable long-term substitute. In fact, a paper published in the journal Science in 2018 estimated that a lone adult female needed to eat a full-grown ring seal at minimum every 10 days just to stay in energetic balance. And just in case you're curious, an adult ring seal is about 144,000 kilocalories or about the same as 262 Big Macs from McDonald's. 
That rate, however, doesn't allow for lactation or for building up of fat reserves for the summer when the sea ice is less and less prevalent. So back to our paper today, and let's start to zoom in a bit. Within the Arctic, polar bear populations are generally divided into 19 subregions across four Arctic ecoregions, with each subregion having some distinct characteristics amongst its bear population. Of the 19 subpopulations, 14 range over North America and Greenland. Of those, five are in the Seasonal Ice Ecoregion, or SIE, which covers Hudson Bay, as well as the two bodies of water between North America and Greenland, namely Baffin Bay and the Labrador Sea. Here, there are significantly more ice-free days than in other regions, and it's within this, the southernmost ecoregion, specifically the western Hudson Bay subpopulation, where a baseline was established for this study with 76 adult males, 41 solitary adult females, and 61 females with dependent cubs. The bears within the western Hudson Bay population tend to be of equal length to those across the SIE. However, they tend to have less mass due to being forced ashore each summer as the sea ice retreats ever earlier. Now, polar bears can fast for months. However, bears are limited by the amount of energy they can store in their body reserves before periods of food deprivation. As these fasts have recently increased, lower body condition, reproduction, survival, and abundance declines have all been observed in some of the SIE and DIE, or divergent ice ecoregions, which cover the northern coast of Europe and Asia. Let's just ignore that scientists name this region DIE. And similar trends are expected throughout the Arctic as ice loss continues. While the impacts of fasting are completely dependent on the energy reserves at initiation, duration, and expenditure of energy, the paper found that, quote, prolonged fasting impacts cub recruitment first, survival declines in yearlings, adult males and adult females with offspring follow, while solitary adult females succumb last, end quote. Further, it states, quote, High rates of recruitment and survival failure following threshold exceedance ensure that soon after these thresholds are crossed, population persistence will be jeopardized, end quote. Now, where it gets complicated is that while thresholds are dependent on the body mass, mass distribution, and body length at the start of fasting each year, we don't have specific data on exactly how long polar bears can fast before adult survival decreased cub recruitment or lactation declines occur, as well as we don't know the speed at which subpopulations will decline once these thresholds have been exceeded. Now, as we learned a few weeks ago, different regions of the Arctic are losing sea ice faster than others, and sea ice loss is occurring at some of the fastest rates in the southern Beaufort Sea. For the purpose of this study, a limit of 127 ice-free days was used as a threshold to distinguish between good and bad years. The trouble using this number, based on historical data sets though, is that the current conditions differ significantly from past observations of low ice extremes, so modeling the future based on a past with greater sea ice can introduce errors within determining polar bear persistence. However, we can make predictions based off of the length of fasting, and the paper found some incredible information. 
quote, impaired cub recruitment is expected when fasts exceed 117 days, followed by declines in yearling recruitment at 185 days, and the survival of mother bears as early as 117 days and no later than 228 days, adult males at 200 days, and solitary adult females at 255 days, end quote. However, Keep in mind that is based off of current availability of energy stores. Should bears face a year in which energy stores decrease by 20%, that 200-day survival threshold for adult males drops to a scant 125 days. In the southern Beaufort Sea, where bears seem to be some of the most sea ice dependent and move much further during fasting, a decline in cub recruitment was found to have already begun as early as the 1990s. In fact, that subpopulation, which has been, quote, characterized by declining body conditions, possibly greater skeletal sizes, additional movement costs imposed by ice fragmentation, and drift during on-ice fasting, both recruitment and survival of both sexes and of all ages decreased with recent low ice, causing a 25 to 50 percent abundance drop. End quote. You heard me right. A population decline by upwards of half. Further, in 2015, a fasting period reached 153 days, and in the southern Hudson Bay region, females appeared to be sacrificing their own body condition in an effort to increase cub survival, which is on a declining trend. And in the Davis Strait subpopulation, cub recruitment is at the lowest of all SIE regions. If there is a glimmer of hope, though, the subpopulation in the Barents Sea region appeared to be stable over the course of the study. However, the bears in this subpopulation tend to be shorter and lighter than their relatives in any of the other 18. Sadly, the potential for polar bears to feed on land is highly unlikely. At the close of the Pleistocene, commonly known as the Ice Age, which ended just 11,700 years ago, polar bear subpopulations ranged as far south as the Baltic Sea. However, as the temperatures warmed during the Holocene, those bears didn't migrate or adapt to living on land. Rather, they simply disappeared. So where do we go from here? And what's the future for this incredible animal? Well, to be honest, with ever-increasing greenhouse gases, polar bears will have their survival predicated almost solely on their physiological limits with regards to fasting. And with sea ice extent largely dependent on how aggressively we address anthropogenic climate change, the responsibility falls squarely on our shoulders, yours and mine. When we cross the information gained here in the paper against the RCP 8.5 business as usual scenario and the intermediate mitigation RCP 4.5 scenario, we get a pretty bleak picture. Even in the intermediate scenario, subpopulations will drop significantly by the year 2100, and some subpopulations potentially disappearing completely. But if we continue on our current path, the paper found that cub recruitment will be almost impossible in all but potentially the Queen Elizabeth Island subpopulation. Further, an early anomaly of just a few ice-free years in a row before they become the norm as expected could cause an unrecoverable decline. So despite a current population estimated between 20 and 25,000 polar bears, will our grandkids be the last to witness this incredible animal? Well, 
Neither this paper nor I can really say, but while the loneliest thought is likely the one of Sudan the Rhino if he knew he was the last of his kind, to me at least, the saddest thought is having to explain to my kids how I caused a majestic creature to be relegated to the pages of history. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I guarantee you we will have a more positive show for you next week. And if I left you feeling like you need to do something, then consider a donation to Polar Bears International. They're a fantastic organization that does amazing work. But to be honest, the best thing you can do is to go out and have a conversation and convince others that we need to change. So in the next week, Tell one other person about this show. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, let's keep it south of two degrees.